ready as I'm going to be. Alrighty. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. What was that verse? We left off uh, last time at verse 12. And of course, Paul was telling Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And to stay grounded and having Jesus in the center of your life. And so that's really what it boils down to. And I think we talked at length about that. But so often, you know, today it just, it's not the case. And I was talking this morning, and I think it's applicable. You know, how, how do we do that? Because a lot of times when you say, you know, keep Jesus in the center of your life, you know, people, uh, it's like, well, I've, I've got my picture of Jesus at home. And I look at that every time before I go outside. And, and uh, yeah, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> I had a good old, an old pastor buddy of mine. I love him to death. He's home with the Lord now. But he used to have the typical Caucasian Jesus on the wall, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know. He was a surfer. And, uh, but he, uh, he, he, always, he always told me, he goes, oh, I just love looking at that thing. I'm going, oh, okay. And, uh, but he was a great guy. But, but that is a lot of people's experience. It certainly wasn't his, but that is a lot of people's experience. When you talk about keeping Jesus the center of your life, there's only one way to really do that, and that's through his word. I'll get into more of this when we get into 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to really look at the word of God and why you can trust it, why it is the inerrant word of God, perfect in every way, from its history. And most people don't know this. Most people don't have but we'll get to that. But I, I just want to mention this tonight before we go on because it's important. You're holding that book in your hand. I want you to think about this. Just contemplate this for a moment. You're holding the absolute Word of God. Now, I say that, and most people go, well, yeah, I know. Do you? Do you really? Because, you know, see, I mean, I, I could stand up here and tell you it's the Word of God. And you might even accept that by blind faith. Because I've had people ask me, well, how do you know it's the Word of God? Because the Bible says it is. Well, yeah, but how do you know? Oh, I'm glad you asked. And I would go into my evidence list is what I say. But see, I'm convinced of it. I'm absolutely convinced of it. And so a lot of times when I'm preaching and a lot of times when I'm teaching... I get passionate about it. Why? Because I want you and those of you who listen to me, I want you guys to, I want you to see that. That you're not holding just a book in your hand. You're holding the absolute inerrant Word of God. How often I've had people over the last 35 or 40 years I've, I've been doing ministry, so often, you know, it's, every now and then somebody will tell me, you know, if I could just see God, Doug, I would be. I'm going, oh, so you're Philip. You know, Philip came to Jesus one time, and he said, Lord, just show me God, and it will suffice. And he said, Philip, if, if you've seen me, you've seen God, for I and the Father are one. And I said, but you know what? The Bible says we have a more sure word of prophecy. It's his word. I mean, think about this. You know, Peter said, we saw the Lord of glory. We held him with our hands. Peter was up on, on the mount, of transfiguration he saw the Lord in his glory him and John they saw that and in Peter he says we saw him we heard him we held him with our hands 
but we have a more sure word of prophecy. Now that's amazing. Peter says that even his visual sight of what he saw and witnessed with his own eyes was not as good and not as authoritative as what the Word of God is. That's powerful. So if it's the Word of God, and I believe that it absolutely is, without error, what place in our life and certainly in our ministry should the Word play? First and foremost. So that when, I, when I'm, and I believe when Paul was telling Timothy, when, when I tell you, you know, keep Jesus the center of your life, that's what I mean because it's the only way you're going to do it. Because so often people have this image of Jesus that isn't accurate. And that's why I brought up the picture earlier. They see him as the blue-eyed, blonde-haired guy. And you know what? Jesus was nothing like that. Even in his physical appearance. Well, how do, I, well, how do you know what he looked like, Doug? I know exactly what he looked like. Well, how do you know? Because I've read the Bible. Do you realize that Jesus, the Bible says there was nothing comely about him that we would desire him? Nothing. That means he didn't stand out in a crowd. When he walked down the street, the only reason he even knew he was coming was because of the multitude of people, not because he was the best-looking guy in the bunch. I remember my dad told me one time, he said, Jesus was the most plain man that ever walked. And I believe he was probably right. The most normal Jewish man that ever walked. Probably not that good looking. You know, so I'm in good company. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. But, that, but that's my point. My point is, is that we often have this image of Jesus that's just not accurate. But man, we get a beautiful picture of him in the Word. And God has written his love letter to us, and we need to have it. It needs to be preeminent in our life. I don't think I'm being legalistic. You know I believe in grace. So those of you who have been listening to me, especially those who have been listening to me for years, you know I'm not legalistic. You know I rebel against that. Why? Because it's not what God wants for us. It's by grace and grace alone, solo graces. It's just it's the way it is. But when it comes to the Word of God, it needs to have preeminence in our life. Even in the Old Testament, he said, I've hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You know, in churches all across America and across the world, really, today and even tonight, Christians are being given a list of things that they should and should not do. They're being taught the law all over again. Do you realize that if you hide the word of God in your heart, that the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about this here in a little bit, the Holy Spirit takes that. And it's by that thing that the Scripture is fulfilled. It says, those he foreknew, he also did predestinate to become conformed into the image of his Son. It's supernatural, and he does it very naturally. So that's why the Word of God is important. So take it with you. Bring it with you. Have it here. There's been plenty of times when I have not been able to have the book with me. I was at a place one time, and because I used to carry a holster, I, I really did. I had one made. It was a leather, and I had my Bible in it all the time. My eyes aren't that good anymore. 
You know, if I've got one that was big enough print to read, I'd, you know, it'd be like, it'd look like a backpack. Wait a minute, let me pull John out here. That's why I like my pad, because I can, I can expand it. Didn't always happen. And the guy challenged me on it. He goes, oh, you don't have your Bible with you. I said, brother, I always have my Bible right here. I've hidden thy word in my heart. God knows. And you'll be amazed at those moments when you're not able to flip a page, which I think you should, but if you can't, you'll be amazed that if you've hidden that word in your heart, how the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance at that moment when you need it. And it'll just flow because it won't be you. It'll be the Holy Spirit doing it. So let's keep that in mind when we're reading and as we dive through the Word of God, not just here, but in any chapter of the Bible that we're in. When the church tries to do whatever it does without the authority and the Word of God, it's doing it in vain because the fruit of ministry is souls in the kingdom. That's the fruit. And that's what we want to look for. We want to look for fruit. We want that. We need that. As Christians, we need that. We need to see people coming to the Lord. And that's not a bad thing. He told Timothy in verse 12, keep Jesus. Keep that the center of your life. He says in verse 13, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth or makes alive all things. And before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, when Jesus stood before Pilate, I always thought it was interesting that Paul here says he witnessed a good confession. What was that confession? Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 18 so we can get this picture of Jesus at this particular moment. A very pivotal point in time. Jesus was there, and of course in verse 33, he says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again. And called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, saying, Thou sayest this thing of thyself, or did someone tell this of thee? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews? But now my kingdom is not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king, and to this end I was born. For this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth, and every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. That's the confession that he made. Jesus said he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. I've heard people say, man, I've got a lot of questions for God. Well, let me tell you something. Every question you could possibly ask about God whether it's about his nature or his personality. What's God really like? Jesus answered it by his sheer presence on this earth. Everything that can be known of God, how he looks, how he acts, how he thinks, how he feels about you, was expressed perfectly in the person and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
That's why I love to talk about him. That's why I want to get to know him through his word. Why? Because it gives me relief to know that I am on the right side of the judgment seat because of him and because of all that he's done for me and for you. He said he came to bore witness of the truth. God is truth. And there is no other. Even though some people try to come up with their own truth, the fact is his word, which is his voice, his spoken, written word, is truth. Jesus said, the words that I speak, they are spirit, they are life, but they are truth. He bore witness of that. And this was the purpose, he said, that he came in. And he said, those who are of the truth, hear my voice. Heard a man tell me one time, he said, I love Jesus, I just don't love the Bible. Huh? I said, what? He goes, well, I, I love the Lord, man. I love the Lord. I just, don't, I just don't really care that much for the Bible. I don't really like reading, you see. Then what, what Jesus do you love? Tell me which one you're talking about because I'm not sure because it's only the Bible that tells me which one he is. Because it was the Apostle Paul who said, beware in the last days because they will come preaching another gospel and another Jesus. So which one are you talking about? See, you can't really love Jesus without knowing his word. You can't. Now why? Because how do you know anything about him? This is the problem, gang. When we come to church empty-handed without our sword, when we don't check what's coming across the pulpit, when I started this, this particular Bible study a few years ago now, it's been over two and a half, we're pushing, we're working on three, believe it or not. When that happened, I remember telling you from the get-go, I said, listen, you don't have to believe anything I tell you, but you should believe everything we read and search the Scriptures, be a Berean, Search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. We don't just take the word of the guy at the pulpit. We want to chart and check, pour through the scriptures, make sure that what is coming across is accurate before you allow it to penetrate into your heart. Make sure it's the word of God. I heard David Guzik, I was listening to him the other day, and I, and I like David, he's a good guy. He was talking about his commentary, which so many people use. And David, he was up there, and he said, you know, it's interesting. He said, I, I happen to be privileged. He said, I write this commentary, which really is just his Sunday morning thing. He said, it has blessed a lot of people. And he says, and I'm grateful that it has. He says, but I would rather you never read or read my commentary if you never open the Bible for yourself. Don't read it. So often, you know, as preachers, a lot of times when they're preparing for a sermon, the first thing they turn to is a commentary. I've always warned people about that, even my own. Don't turn to me. There's people who download mine. They download them, and there was a, over in Belgium, they were downloading my, and teaching them in their, in their churches over there, taking my commentary. I'm going, my preaching, just turning it in, and, and they wrote me, and it was like, oh, man, this is, well, I go, great. But preach the Bible. Now, granted, I realize I use a lot of Scripture, but it's not the same. The Bible's plain, spoken. It's the Word of God. We need to look at it that way. We need to be Bereans. We need to check those things. Jesus said, 
those who are of the truth hear my voice. And his word is truth. Look at verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot and unrebukable unto the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. What commandment? What's he talking about? Paul told Timothy to keep this until the appearing of the Lord. Keep this commandment. Well, the commandment he's been telling him from the get-go, as we've been reading, is to keep God in the center. Keep Jesus the center. Pursue after righteousness, he said, which is the same as pursuing after Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. Well, what is the righteousness of God? Well, it's Jesus Christ. That's the commandment. Seek after the Lord. Follow after him. And how do we do that? So, so often, you know, I, I asked a, a, a gentleman the other day, and he was talking about, well, don't you believe, Doug, that God has, you know, God has told us exactly what he wants us to do? I said, oh, I, absolutely I do. But what is that thing? Don't just tell me that, that God's given me some things to do. What does he want me to do? Brother, I got too much, I got Jewish blood in me. I, I know all about wanting to do things. Yeah. But what is it? I said, they came to Jesus one day in the, in the Gospel of John. And they said, Lord, what is the works of God that we might do them? Tell me what to do. Give me a list, you see. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. God couldn't make it any simpler. But man, we want to complicate it. Heard a very famous evangelist. I won't even mention his name. And I know he meant well, but he was wrong. He was talking about the gospel. And he was talking to an unbeliever, a very famous unbeliever, who was kind of criticizing and making light of, of the gospel, which was typical of an unbeliever. And he asked him, he says, well, how do you, you know, how do you do these things? And he goes, well, God has given us a set of rules that we should go by. And he, this is his exact words, a set of rules. And I went, oh, man. The Gentiles take the New Testament, the New Covenant, and they turn it into a new law. They don't call it the Ten Commandments. They say, here's the things that you do and don't do. Same thing. But it's not what it says. Jesus said, believe. Believe. And as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit genuinely comes into my life, then something supernatural happens. I'm born again. And once you're born again, you see things different. You hear things different. Then the Word of God, as you take it in, as you put it in, the Holy Spirit will bring that to you, remember, and He will lead you into all truth. You don't need me pointing out things. I was sitting here one time, and I was up here, and I think Ty was cracking a joke on me, and she said something about books, and she said, Doug, Doug, hate, Doug hates all kinds of writers. And I said, no, I just hate heretics. I said, but I will never tell you not to read a book. I won't do it. I might make my comment about it. I'm not going to tell you not to do it, because the first time I tell you not to do it, that's the first thing you're going to do. You're going to run out and buy it. It's like these knuckleheads. When you see one of these blasphemous movies coming on, they go, hey, don't go see that thing. They make more money off of that than they can get. They're, they hope that somebody says that. Why? That's the law. Don't do it makes you what? Want to do it. What I hope to do with people is to at least instill in them enough where you, when you read those things, 
you're able to discern what is biblical and what's not biblical. You know, we want to keep that. You know, we, we've got to walk in the power of the Spirit. We've got to realize that. You know. I heard it said one time that there's actually two planes to a man's life. One's vertical, one's horizontal. The vertical, of course, is your relationship with God and your life pivots on that. And when that one is not balanced, then the horizontal, which is your relationship with mankind or, or even your relationship with possessions, because that's really what Paul's been talking about with Timothy, the issue of being rich and those types of things, that thing will be out of balance. So it's important as we keep Jesus in the center of our life that we make sure, and that's how we're actually making sure that that, that vertical relationship with God is in balance through his word. And as long as that one's good, then our perspective, if you will, in our relationships, be it between each other, be it with stuff, the things of this world, that will also be in balance. So it boils right down to just keep God in the center of all things. It reminded me of a verse as I was putting this together over the week. You know, the Bible says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now think about that. When a man's ways please the Lord. Now, some people hear that and you go, Oh, I wonder how I can please the Lord then, because I've got a few enemies I wish that were at peace with me. I'm glad you said that. How do you please the Lord? When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be. How do I please the Lord? Hmm. What good thing must I do, Lord, to please thee? And Jesus said, I've already done it. Isn't it amazing? Jesus said, I do always those things which what? Please the Father. Oh, thank God for Jesus. Thank God that we are clothed in His righteousness, that we have had that imputed to us by faith. Thank God for that. How do I please the Lord? Believe on Him whom He has sent. And as you're born again, once again, we're, we, the church worries way too much about right doing. And in reality, we need to be more concerned with right believing because it's what you believe that will dictate what you do. If you really believe something, even subconsciously, if you hold it to be absolute fact, it will affect what you do, even unconsciously. But so often we think, no, if I, if I just, if, you know, if I got my steps, my, here's my 12-step program. <laughs> no. Can that work? Oh, it might keep you clean for a while. It just won't keep you clean forever. But if you walk in faith trusting in Jesus for everything, your righteousness, your holiness, your sanctification, your income, whatever it might be, then you're going to have a life that is so much more fuller and God is going to be so much in the center. That's how you please the Lord. You believe, be convinced that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and that he is pouring out his blessing upon you, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. He blesses you because he loves you. I was talking with a, a, a brother this afternoon, actually, and it was, uh, and I love talking to him. He's, he's a good guy. But we had this discussion, and he even, he admitted to me, he loves coming to me, he loves listening to my teaching, even though he's not sitting here. You know who you are. 
And he loves to ask me these questions, but, I, you know, because he wants me to hear. I know what he is. He loves to hear me tell him, brother, you're in Christ. Jesus has done it. He loves hearing it. But he admitted to me that sometimes, you know, I just, I, I want to, you know, I want to do this. And I don't feel, I'm going, yeah, that's why we don't walk by feelings. We walk by faith. But you know what? The people struggle with it. But we need to get to the point where we're convinced that everything Jesus did is sufficient. He is sufficient. And thus we preach what is known as the centrality of Jesus Christ. There's not very many churches, gang, anymore that do. Jesus is the central thing to us. It should be as a church. It should be as a denomination or any, but it should certainly be that in our life. That's really what it boils down to. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Verse 15, which in times he shall show, talking about Jesus, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Man, you got to love Paul when he's writing. <laughs> Here's a, that dude was passionate, you know. He just was. When Jesus returns, Paul says, he's going to show who is the only true God, the only true potentate, the only true king of kings. See, right now there are people who sit in churches I realize the world doesn't believe, and I'm not, they just need the gospel. I'm not concerned with those. I'm concerned with those who sit in pews, regardless of the church. Because there's a lot of people who sit in the pews who really are not ready for Jesus to return. They're not even really sure that he is who he said he was. Oh, they're hoping. They're hoping. This was a question that came to me today. Because, you know, there's the preacher who used this illustration. He said, you know, if, if I believe with my whole heart that Jesus is who he said he was, and I live a good life, and I die and I find out that there is no God, then I've lost nothing. But, you know, if the unbeliever lives like a heathen, and he dies and finds out that there is a God, then he's lost everything. And I realize on the surface that sounds like wisdom. But let me challenge you. If you came here, which you, some of you have been coming here for a few years now, and listening to me preach, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not altogether sure that this is absolutely true. But you know what, gang? I, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that it is, man. You know, maybe we're all really going to be saved. Wouldn't that be great if it really is true? That's, that's what that, that little scenario I gave you, that's what, that's what the guy's saying. You know, if I live a good life and I get there and I find out it's not true. I got news for you. It is true. There is no other result. There's no other scenario that can be preached. God is true. And every man a liar, the Bible says. If you preach something like that, brother, I challenge how much faith you really have. For it's by grace you are saved through 
faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So even the faith that we say that we have is not our own. It's something that God has granted to us. So if I tell you, or anybody tells you, well, if you die, maybe there's no... No, that is not faith. That's ridiculous. That is, that's beyond doubt. That is hedging your bet, is what my friend told me this afternoon. That's hedging your bet. Well, you know, I just, it's kind of like that old Elvis Presley movie that they made about him. And I don't know how accurate it was, but I never forget this one scene in it. Elvis is sitting there talking to his wife, and he's got all these, or his girlfriend at the time, he's all these necklaces, and they had all these different types of trinkets on it. And I hope I ain't offending an Elvis fan. But he had all these trees. He had one that had a cross on it. One had the star David. One had this other, like, well, all kinds of weird stuff. And she goes, why do you wear all that stuff? I mean, you, you realize that some of these religions kind of contradict each other, right? And here's what, here, in the movie anyway, he said, well, I wouldn't want to get left out on a technicality. Now, did he really say that? I don't know. But in the movie, I thought, man, you know what the, you know what the sad part is? There's people who live their lives that way. I don't want to get left out on a technicality. That's why God has made the way so clear, so precise, and so narrow. You know, Jesus talking in the Gospels, he said, the, you know, broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Then he says this, because narrow is the gate, straight is the way that leadeth unto life. And then he says this, and few there be that find it. He doesn't say few there be that go in it. Few there be that find it. Now when, when some people hear that, you know, narrows the path, they start thinking of all the stuff they, don't, they ain't allowed to do anymore. You know, I'm serious. They start thinking, once again, they're back to the list and the rules and regulations because that's what I want to do. I want to go the narrow path, Doug. Oh, because I don't want to miss it. You know why people are going to miss it? Because they can't surrender their self-sufficiency and their self-reliance to the only one who ever did anything for you. Completely. Jesus told his own disciples, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Once again, when you hear that preached, half the time you get a list of what, here's what you can do to deny yourself. That's not what he was talking. When Jesus said, deny yourself, you go back and look at the gospel. He was talking to Jews who what? Who kept the law, who thought that the blessing and the salvation of God came by keeping the law. Jesus said, everything that was written in the law of the prophets, I came to fulfill. And he told them, except you deny yourself and pick up that cross. I told the guy, I said, look, brother, I could never bear the cross that Jesus bore for me. I couldn't do it. Neither could you. Only Jesus could do it. And the only way we can do that and to bear the cross of, is to allow him to bear it for us. And we simply follow in his footsteps. Quit looking for things to do. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to show us who the true God is. We already know, those of us who study the word and we believe it. 
We already know who the true God is. But when Jesus returns, he's going to show above and beyond to those who do doubt who the only true God, the potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords truly is. There are false gods. That's why Jesus, when he returns, is going to show us what it is. And of course, Paul has been going in depth talking about one of them. And of course, he's talking about the false god of wealth. Hmm. It's probably the most worshipped god today in the world. It's a false god. God of mammon. And unfortunately, it's at the very center of many people's lives. They're consumed by it. Make no mistake, you know, you don't have to possess wealth to be a worshiper of wealth. We often make that mistake. We think sometimes that it's the wealthy people, the ones who have money, well, they must know. That's not true. I heard an old preacher say one time that actually the worshiping of the false god of wealth is probably more endemic amongst the poor than it is amongst the wealthy. Why? Because the poor people are still under the illusion, the false illusion, that wealth is the answer to their problem. And those who genuinely have money already know that that's not true. So you don't have to have money to try to pursue after it or after wealth in what Paul has been talking about. Because he goes even stronger when you look at verse 17. He says, charge them that are rich in this world. And of course, once again, he's not talking about the world. That he's talking about Christians that are in the world. Because, you know, guys like uh, Bill Gates aren't going to listen to a preacher like me. He could care less. He's not a Christian. He's filthy rich. So that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who are in Christ. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Very, very, very good verse. I love this verse. So Timothy's war, you know, his warning was to be to those Christians who had wealth, not to be high-minded. What's he mean by that? Well, so often, if you're successful in life, financially, business, whatever, people will automatically assume and anybody who's ever been in business or has money or whatever, and other people know it, they'll know what I'm saying is true. You were going to get strokes. People are going to pat you on the back. And they're going to say, wow, man, you know, look at this thing. Look at what you built. You know. The mistake you will make is going, that's right. <laughs> that's a mistake. Because everything you have was given to you by God. You are a steward of what God has given you. I never, I, you know, because I, I had been a Bible teacher for so long, even when I was a successful businessman, I never made that mistake. And I always knew. I kept it at bay. Because people always, I remember having a very close friend of mine, really good guy. He was opening a brand new business. And I probably told you the story, but I'll say it again. You know, he came to me one day and he was opening this brand new business. And he goes, and he throws this book, this big folder on my desk. And he says, would you look at this for me? I said, what is it? He goes, it's my business plan. I started laughing, and I said, what, what do you want me to look at it for? He goes, well, look, look at what you guys have done here. Well, obviously, you know what you're doing. And I said, oh, brother, there isn't anybody who's been to business school who would do, who would do what I've done. I know nothing. 
I said, you have misread the data at hand. I said, you know, we are successful because of Jesus Christ. We are successful because this business belongs to the Lord. We are successful because of him, not because you got a bunch of brainiacs over here doing it. And it was a high-end field. I mean, it was a laboratory, a very successful one. But it was a joke. I said, brother, I wouldn't even know what I'm reading if I read this thing. I said, don't, you know, here's what I'll tell you. Take your business plan, go home, get on your knees before God and pray over it. And you'll know whether it's God. He goes, how? I says, it'll work. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Take a step of faith. If it works, it's God. If it don't, just step on back. That was you. Pretty simple. Paul says, look, don't trust in it. Don't be high-minded. Or trust in uncertain riches. Because it's an easy thing, especially when you got a good steady flow of it. I was put to the test of this many times in my life, and I'd love to sit and tell you that I passed every one of them, but I'd be lying. I didn't. I found myself at times trusting in uncertain riches. And when you do that, you will be let down every time. Why? Because the Lord giveth, and the Lord can taketh away. And he'll do that not because he's trying to punish you, but he's trying you to get you to learn something about you. I heard a guy say one time, he says, well, God's testing you to see what you, I said, what are you, do you not understand that God is God? God is sovereign. He already knows everything about you that you could possibly know. The past, present, and in future, the good, the bad, and the, he already knows. Well, what's he trying to find out? Oh, he's trying to teach. And he's trying to teach you about you. That's what happens when those things, so don't trust in uncertain riches, Paul says. Tell him that. But trust in the living God, he said. And look at the last part of verse 17 there. He says, and if you take a note, you need to underline this. Who gives us all things richly to enjoy. All things means what, gang? All. Just for kicks and giggles, after I had already put my sermon together, I decided to pull up one commentary. I won't mention the guy because I love him. And I thought, I wonder what he did. Because I knew what I was going to read. I just knew it. Because when you come across a verse like this that is so plain, so simple, some of those preachers goes, oh my gosh, if somebody takes that literally. All things. So what did he do? He went, well, he started giving a list of all the things that weren't contained in all. I thought it was hilarious. I'm reading it because I love this guy. He's home with the Lord now. But, you know, I'm going so typical. So typical. Why? Because somewhere in the back of his mind, even though I knew the man, and I knew he knew better than this, but somewhere in the back of his mind, subconsciously, he thought, if I just leave that verse the way it is, the people are going to run amok, you know. They're gonna, now, who knows? They'll be out doing crack cocaine or something, you know, and chalking it up to a liberty. And I'm going... See, once again, when the Holy Spirit resides, when you're born again, and the Holy Spirit is the one who's actually leading and teaching, you don't have to worry about that. Why? Because those things, you will not have a desire for those. It's just not going to be there. And if you have a problem with it, the Lord will deliver you from it. You don't need me sitting here laying some guilt trip on you and telling you, that the Holy Spirit's much more able to do it. You know, he's, he's, he's much more able to do it. And when he does it, it's permanent. So if there's a change, it needs to be made. But I say, you know what? All means all. I don't have to define what that means. It says it. Look it up in a dictionary, an English one. You don't even need Greek for that. All means all. 
You know, a lot of times they'll start, you know, they want to go right back to the, you know, blessed is a man that sits not in the council of the ungodly. Well, that's true. No doubt about that. But they'll go on this long list of it. So to them, all doesn't really mean all, but all means all. Matter of fact, it tells us that in Corinthians. After we get done with Timothy's, Second Timothy, we're going to go to Corinthians. So we're going to see that again. Paul says this over and over again. All things, right? All things. All means all. Look at verse 18. But he says, tell them that they should do good. That to be rich in good works. Ready to distribute. That means to share. Willing to communicate. That's what the word communicate means. Laying up store for themselves uh, a good foundation against the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. There's a story that Jesus told a parable in the book of Luke. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to talk about it. It's, but if you want to read it later, it's in 16 verses 1 through 9. And of course, it, is, and, and it says, and, and Jesus said unto his disciples that there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? My Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, which he probably could, but he was just lazy. To, to beg, I'm ashamed. I am resolved what to do. That, when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and he said unto him first, How much do you owe my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said unto him, Take thy bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe us? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, take thy bill and write four score. Verse 8, and the Lord commended. This is interesting to me. The Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness that when you die, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. That's a very interesting parable. And a lot of people have a hard time with it. What's he talking about? At this moment, we have the opportunity of laying up treasure in heaven. That's our opportunity. We will not always have that opportunity because after you die, that opportunity is gone. And so people sometimes are more concerned with laying in store, that is, hoarding their money. I've known many Christians who have done it. You know, and, and they'll, they just save for the sake of saving, like they're saving against something, you know. Or they want to pass it down to their kids. I knew one guy who saved up quite a large sum of money and told his kids that he was going to leave it to them in inheritance and then proceeded to tell his kids to keep it in their bank, let it accumulate, and then pass it down to their kids. He was a Christian. I'm going, let's see, I take 500 grand, I put that, and I give that to my kid, and I say, you hang on to that, and then you give it to your kid, and then you give it to your kid, and what good has it done in the kingdom of God? None. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and this is what Jesus is saying. You store up treasure in heaven. One is temporal, one is eternal. And really, using your goods or your finances, whatever that might be, time, talent, and treasure, on this side of heaven, 
that you might store up heaven, you know, treasures in heaven. That's what is most important. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. This is what you want to make sure of. Make sure that the eternal is at the center. That's the one that you've got to keep in focus. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew 6, 20. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. So that's the bottom line. This is what he's talking about. This is what Paul was telling Timothy. Verse 20. He said, O Timothy, keep that which, I have com- that which is committed unto thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Every time I see, when you see fal- you know, science falsely so-called, underline it. Every time I see that, I think of the false theory of evolution. It's one of the most ridiculous that I've ever seen. And, and I remember years ago, back in the 80s, there was a guy by the name of William Fix, Dr. Fix. He wrote a book called The Bone Peddlers. And it was recommended reading by some uh, a prof that was at a college that I was actually attending at the time. And so I read it. And I wasn't even serving the Lord back then. But this guy was a professed atheist. And what he does in the book was he simply went through, and he was an atheist, I said that, right? He went through the book and he basically showed all the falsified evidence, all of the corrupted uh, things that, that the paleontologists and, of course, the, the science field at that time had to lay out in order to bolster their position that, of course, we all came from, you know, monkeys somewhere. And he was very honest about it. Now, the sad part about the end of that book was the guy's an atheist. And he said, you know, the evidence for evolution is totally non-existent. So we know that's not true. But at the same time, I don't believe there's a God. And I thought, wow. Boy, you talk about a guy that's miserable. (laughs) He had nothing, you know. I mean, he had nothing. But the fact is, is this is the way evolution is. Do you realize that there are men standing behind pulpits, people sitting in the pew, who have been fed this lie, this false science of evolution. We even, we even have a name for it in theology. It's theoevolutionary. And there's some very, very famous guys. I won't go into it tonight, but I can. And I probably will at some time. I just won't do it tonight. Who actually adhere to this? Now, they're not scientists. They're theologians. You know, they're preachers like me. And yet they have listened to ungodly men who do not believe the word of God and who say, no, no, no. You know, there was this period of time, you know, and, and he's going, well, maybe six days isn't six days in the creation. Maybe it was really six million or six billion years, you see. Going, no, that's not what it says in the Hebrew. <laughs> it says it was six days. <laughs> so, but this is what he says. Don't even pay attention to it, he tells Timothy. Don't listen to vain babblings and, of men, you know, and, and oppositions of science that is falsely so-called. It's not science. It's a theory, and it's an unproven theory. I think it's one of the interesting things. I'll just throw this, and I'll move on. <clears throat> Paluxy, Texas. There's the river down there. And there's these great dinosaur. Um, you know dinosaurs are in the Bible, right? I mean, you know that. I don't have to tell you guys that. You know that, right? Read Job. I'll just throw it out to you. For those of you who don't know, read Job. It's called a Leviathan and a Behemoth. I always thought it was interesting when some, some of these lukewarm Bibles, I'll call them, when they write those words down, I always think it's funny because they'll put like a little, you know, a little asterisk and of course you go down to the bottom of the footnote. 
and one of them gives the description of a Leviathan down at the bottom, you know, it says alligator. I was like, what? Have, did you read this? <laughs> Go read that. Read the description of those two animals, which we don't even know. Those words, Leviathan and behemoth, are transliterations, which means we have no word for it in the English, so we just transliterated it from the Hebrew, which means we took letter for letter and we came up with behemoth. And what's that mean? Oh, but boy, whatever it was, it's pretty scary, you know. But there's people out there that they just take whatever's being told to them, and they just suck it up and they want to believe it. And, and, it, and, and in reality, what's it doing? It's leading them away from the Word of God because the Bible's very clear. And once we get to the book of Genesis, I can't wait to get to the book of Genesis. I love Genesis because science is so much in favor of God. Why? He created it. He created it. It's not at polar ends. Absolutely one complements the other, and the Bible's so perfect on it. But, it's a, but evolution is a science which is falsely so-called. Verse 21. Which some having professed, like I said, there's guys today professing it, behind pulpits even, have, you know, have erred from the faith. You see that? They have erred concerning the faith. Why? Because it's led them away from God. Grace be with thee, amen, the first to Timothy, which was written from Laodicea, which is the chief city of Phrygia in Pansantinia. So it's a, you know, very abrupt ending really for that. And, and then we get right here into 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, you got to keep it in mind, this is the last epistle Paul wrote. This is it. This is the last epistle that he ever wrote. And keep it in mind, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but this is the last one that he ever wrote. He found himself once again imprisoned in Rome. And as we discussed in the book of Acts, it, it would appear that Paul had been released for a short period of time from his first imprisonment and was allowed some liberty uh, and went to go preach the gospel. And from the book of Acts, it's also, it's kind of easy, I think, and to see the various epistles that Paul had written on his missionary journeys. And so it's believed that he went from Miletus, then to Corneth, to Troas, and more likely to Ephesus, and from there was arrested and then taken back to Rome for the last time. At this particular time, Paul no doubt knows that he is not going anywhere. He knows his time is short, and he knows he has the sentence of death upon him. He knows it. He's literally living in the shadow of an executioner. This is his mindset. I want you to get that when he writes this because I think it's so powerful of an epistle. But he's living in that constant awareness that his time is very short. And so look at verse 1. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Like I said, you got to love Paul. Here he is in this dismal dungeon in the shadow of an executioner. And what's he write to Timothy about? About the promise of life. About the life which is in Jesus Christ. I love that about him, man. He just, he, he, why? Because it was real to him. It was real to him. Paul undoubtedly knew that Jesus said, fear not them which can kill the body and after are not able to kill the soul, but, after, but rather fear him who, after having destroyed the body, can also destroy the soul in hell. That's the one you want to fear. Don't fear the other. 
Man can take your body, but he can't take nothing else. And if you're in Christ, you will live forever. You will. You are. I mean, eternal life starts when you're born again, not after you're dead. But this is what Paul knew. It's what Paul believed. 1 John chapter 5, you can write it down. Verse 11 through 13, he says, And this is the record that God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So often I've had people tell me, well, I just, you know, Doug, I just don't feel like, I don't know, sometimes I just don't feel like I'm saved. I'm going, well, man, it's a good thing you don't walk by feelings, man, because you are going to be one defeated Christian. There are going to be times when you get up that you had too much pizza the night before, you just don't feel good. Or you run into some preacher who just beat you up something fierce on Sunday morning and you walk out of there. I mean, because boys, some people do that, you know, on Sunday morning. They walk out. You know, I call it beating the sheep. <laughs> they beat the sheep. They don't feed the sheep. They just beat the sheep. You know, and they walk out dismayed, questioning whether or not they're even saved, the poor souls. He says, I've written this unto you that you might know. Those of you who believe on the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, that you might know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. That's why I preach Jesus. That's why I preach Jesus continually, the centrality of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the work of Jesus, all that Jesus, that's what I preach because this is what the Word preaches because that's where God wants your attention on what Jesus has done. And so often it's too easy to get off of that. It's too easy to get off of that. We want to get off on other things. But Jesus needs to be the central, the central theme of everything. He, I've written this unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. I think it's, it's important that we know that. Because so many people don't today, gang. They don't. They come to church. But they're not living in victory. They're not living in the power of God. And that's a sad thing. But the only thing that's going to give that to us is the Word. To be going through it. You'll notice, and I'm going to end with this. We'll pick it back up. Read ahead. But so often when we talk about salvation, we're basing it upon something that we heard. And, and it very well may have been true. Maybe it was at some, you know, evangelistic thing. But as I quoted Peter earlier, I said, Peter said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. You know, I can lay a guilt trip on somebody and I, I could have them come to the altar. I wouldn't do that, but I could. I could point out how wretched a person is. But it's so much better when the Holy Spirit moves upon the heart of a person and says, you know what, you need Jesus. You know, when the, when the Holy Spirit moves upon a person's life and says, you know, you know that what Doug's saying is true. You know he's talking. But, he's, but I'm talking to you. And he's doing this the whole time. He's knocking on your door. And Jesus, even in the book of Revelation, he says, Lo, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open unto me, I will come into him and I will sup with him. We'll break bread. See, that's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus just wants to come in and sit down and have dinner. 
I think that's so cool. To be one with him is a beautiful thing. And to realize that we have victory in him about all that he's done is just absolutely what needs to be at the center of our life. And I hope that is the case, not only with you guys, but with those who listen on the air. We love you. Father, we thank you so much for all that Jesus has done for us, Lord. I thank you for reminding us all of what Jesus has done for us. Father, help us to keep Jesus in the center of our life, Lord. Father, by your word. Father, help us to yield on a continual basis to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said when he has come, he would lead us into all truth, Lord. Father, we know that he has come on the day of Pentecost, and he's been poured out upon all flesh that will receive him. So, Lord, help us yield to him. We ask for your blessing upon the church, Lord Father, upon your people, upon those, Lord Father, who will hear this message, who are driving down the road, who don't know you, but, Lord Father, they, 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 they need to. Pray that the Holy Spirit would go beforehand, and he would touch their heart, that they would see their need for Jesus, and they would simply... Repent, Lord Father, of their mind. Change their mind and believe. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.